Luke chapter 1 is where we are going to be uh, learning together uh, from this morning. Christmas season, if you think about it, is one of the most poignant times when a church ought to really be a church. And when I say a church ought to really be a church, I mean that from the songs all the way down to the person who has the microphone really needs to fit their role. And I want you to know that especially in this time of year, I am under no delusion that my job is to be innovative, that my job is to be, to be dropping mad knowledge on you, just like wisdom and truth bombs that came from this special spiritual place. My job is to convince you, and my job is to commit to you the old, old story of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What we need in the Christmas season, and I need to remember this over and over again, because there's a lot of pressure just so you know. Like pressure is like, for pastors is like sweeps week, weeks for like TV shows. You know, they always have the big drama right at the one week to get the good ratings. Christmas is sort of like, well, you better be on point, pastor, right? Like Grandma Earl's coming. Weird, weird grandma name, right? <laughs> uh, that's her first problem. But, um, Right? It's like there's some pressure there. And I just want to say to you that, and you might not know this, but my my prayer and my job is that we do not have a single moment of the Christmas season go by and we just simply go through the motions that it's all routine and all tradition. I love me some tradition. I want us to ratchet up the tradition and, and smell the smells and eat the food and drink the drinks and all those things. But there's a temptation in all of our lives to simply go through the motions and forget what this is all about. And so Christmas, especially for a church, is about remembering and remembering well. It's about going back to the basics and saying, why are we doing what we're doing? I heard a great story one time that in, in the military at shooting ranges, right? I'm not sure where I heard this story, but at shooting ranges for the longest time, for decades, there would be a man who his post was, was to stand on the edge of the shooting range and do nothing. And one, eventually, one of the, the people that was observing this came and said, why does this person have this post there? And nobody knew why the guy stood there doing nothing. No one knew. And they tracked it down, and finally a military historian stepped in and figured it out, right? And they said that some hundred years ago or maybe more, the commanding officer was the only one who came to the shooting range with a horse, and he needed to give a post to someone to stand on the end and hold the reins of the horse. And we have long since, right, a hundred years later, there's no horse, there's no need for the guy to stand there, but the guy, he's just, he's just standing, that's his post, right? Many of us, I fear, are going to sing Joy to the World, we're going to smell the smells, we're going to eat the stuff, we're going to give the gifts, and we have potential to stand holding no horse, right? I, I really think all of us do. You don't need new information. You need to walk and to execute and to remember and to rejoice in the things that are true and have been eternally true, namely this, that God loves you and he loves you so much that he gave his son God of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is about. So we're going right back to the basics. Luke chapter 1 is where we're at. I'm going to begin reading. Uh, we're going to switch this up a little bit. We're going to begin reading in verse 5. I'm going to read 5 through 25, and you're going to get the backdrop of a story of Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist. And these two weeks, this week we're getting John the Baptist. Next week will be the birth of Jesus. And so it becomes Zechariah and then Mary, and we're going to focus a bulk of our time on Zechariah's song at the end of Luke chapter 1. So why don't you read with me? 
keeping in mind that our goal is to inject some good old-fashioned meaning into our Christmas again this season. This is what it says, the fifth verse of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. Now, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people, among people. Let me just stop and pray. Father, give us, uh, give us insight, give us clarity. I confess uh, to you, I confess to you my need I'm insufficient. I'm insufficient to properly, uh, properly and perfectly handle these truths. I want to divide them rightly so that all of us here might be more in awe, more longing, have more expectation for what you're doing to prepare, to prepare our future, to prepare forgiveness for us. God, I pray for all who have come, would you give them eyes to see and move in hardened hearts, soften hearts. Holy Spirit, come and give us ears. God, we want, to, we want to see supernatural things, wonderful things from your word. And so we need you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, uh, we're going to jump forward to verse 57, and we're going to see the story and then a song. The story and then a song of John the Baptist's birth. But I wanted to read these first 20 verses or so to set the scene for this really peculiar thing that starts to happen in the preparation for the coming of Jesus. God begins to move 
so that he can prepare. In fact, the the wording in verse 17 is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the beginning stages of the preparation of Jesus coming into the world. That's why we read it. In about 10 days, we have Christmas Eve, right? And everyone will go to bed expecting and thinking about when the child comes, when Jesus is actually born. And this is all part of the preparation leading up to it. Many of you are probably engaged in preparation right now, right? You have friends and family coming uh, for the holidays. You have gift giving to do. Sarah and I have spent times looking at each other and, and looking, writing down names. And, and well, I should say Sarah is preparing way more than me. But I'm trying to help. And she's, uh, she's organized and she has names. And what are, what are we doing for who? We don't want to leave anyone out. We had some people over on Friday night. And she made, she made these awesome like pecan pie chocolate balls that were great, right? And so we're preparing. We're doing all these peculiar things. In fact, preparation in general always has you doing things that are a little bit odd, I think. And I'm trying to, when I read into Scripture, I think to myself, what should God have been doing? What does it look like to prepare for the significance of Jesus coming into the world? And what we're given is this narrative, one of the times that I prepared for the coming of someone was in the year 2000. I got called when I was doing, um, well, I was at a missionary base, and I got called by a friend, and they said, hey, I know this lady. She works in Springdale, Arkansas, and there's this rally that's going to come. It's for a candidate for the presidency, and they're coming through on a campaign tour thing, and they need a bunch of young people to come and help run this show. And so from the moment she asked me, All of these wheels, these cogs, for like a 20-minute little production for a campaign stop for a potential incoming presidential candidate, right? This lady who was on the ground gathered us, and we drove over there, and we got there. We got there hours early, and there's all of these supplies there and the security in place. And then about an hour before before this rally started, these doors flew open and we saw this whole mess of people come in. It was like this prepared advance team. And it seemed every bit as like it would be like, we watched the West Wing a little bit. Um, and so I got to admit, like I totally felt like that's what I was in. Uh, I was this 19-year-old kid, right? And I'm looking around and there's people just rolling in in suits and talking in their microphones. There's this one guy who was straight out of, I, I thought he, I said it was out of the Matrix, you know? In the 9 a.m. service, I said he was Mr. Anderson. And then someone very kindly corrected me and said, no, that's Neo or something. Uh, I can't seem like I know movies too well, right? It wouldn't be holy. But it's the, uh, it's the guy who like walks like this, you know what I mean? And is always like in charge. He's the guy who says, Mr. Anderson, that guy. It seemed like there was one dude who came and he was like the advanced team guy. And you would not have believed. He was amazing. But the things that he was telling people to do, it was it, the directives. I overheard him saying to people about like, you go to the front, you go over here, you got these flyers, you got to do this, you got to do that. Instructions about the particular kinds of people, the demographic of faces they wanted in one section of the stage because this camera was going to have this shot for this long. I overheard someone saying specifically to some, one of my friends at the front door, if someone came in and it looks like they just came from a pig farm, and they smell and they're so dirty and stuff, then the balcony has wonderful spots for them. Like there's just, manu- just manicuring every aspect of this thing. And I want you to know that my part in the preparation, this is all going some more. Zachariah has a part in the preparation, right? 
You guys are like, this is a stretch. It's a fun story. So my part in the preparation, right? My part in the preparation was about 30 minutes before I went up to the edge of a balcony and I sat blowing up balloons. And I just blew up balloons. And then I waited with a huge stack of balloons. And three of us, when a person pointed at us like this and the music played, we just chucked balloons over the top of this balcony. <laughs> and just, just preparing the way so that this man could walk underneath a you know, like cascading balloons when he came out onto the stage, right? Now, some of my friends later on actually got pictures with, it was going to be two-time, two-term president. It was uh, President Bush, right? He, had, he was announcing his first campaign stop with Dick Cheney, and it was like this big deal. And later on, I found out that they got pictures with him, and they had like, they were behind the stage and like all this cool stuff. And they thought I would be disappointed because I love politics, and they thought I might have wanted to got a picture. But the reason that I threw balloons was because there was this beautiful, fun Cajun girl who was also throwing balloons at the top of the balcony. And at the time, I didn't care about pictures with potential presidents. I just said, where is that Sarah girl going? I want to go wherever she's going. So we got to throw balloons together, and that was our part, small part, in the preparation for this guy coming for 20 minutes for this particular rally, right? What happens here is this is, advanced, this is an advanced team, right? John the Baptist is the advanced team for Jesus coming into the world. And so, understandably, things start to get ruffled. There are peculiar circumstances that happen. Zechariah is a priest. He's a priest who has esteem. He probably has money. He probably has influence. He is not like Mary, who next week we will find out was an obscure, from-the-country girl who was not even married yet, but Zechariah was a man who had influence. He was serving. And not only that, but this moment of his preparation, his part to play in the preparation, comes at a time when he has just basically won the lottery. He is at the pinnacle of his career. There were too many priests for all of them to get to go in and to do the burning of the incense, which is what he gets at here. And so one time in your life, if you're a priest, one time in your life you could serve and do this particular, you could do this particular job, and this is his day. Can you imagine that? In your, in your career, in your vocation, in your field, what's, what, what's that thing? What's that one thing that it's like, you get tapped to do it and this is, this is it, this is the pinnacle? I don't know what it is, but for Zechariah, this was his moment. So he goes in. All the other priests go back out, and it's time for his, his work, and a peculiar thing happens. An angel is standing next to the altar. He's startled by this. It says, like almost every encounter with angels all throughout the Bible, when you come in, in contact with a heavenly being, in this sense, it's an angel. He is afraid when he saw him. He thinks to himself, like everyone with a sober amount of self-esteem would probably think, what did I do now? right? That's what he thinks. If you ever come in contact with an angel and you think to yourself like, cool, bro. Like, I'm so glad you're here. Like, dap it up, right? If you have that response to an angel, you are probably under some sort of delusion and you need to be humbled, right? And so Zechariah has a humble approach. Remember, it says that he's been righteous. He's been walking blamelessly. One of the characteristics of someone who walks blamelessly is they know the depth of their own sin, so Zechariah sees this angel and he thinks to himself, this is bad. There's no other priests here. What did I do? Something's wrong. He needs to be comforted. And the angel begins to relate to him this amazing story that he will have a son. 
he does the he does a very, very common thing. It's another reason why I love the biblical story. It's not photoshopped. It's not glossed over. You know that God, even in the midst of his preparation for his son, he uses sinful people, doubting people. Zechariah, at the pinnacle of his priestly life, meeting an angel, it says that he walked blamelessly before the Lord. You know what his response was to God's promise? Something to the effect of, nah. I mean, that's really what his soul said when Gabriel said, you'll have a son. And why? He pointed to his circumstances, which every single person is tempted to do. You know that? You know that the fight of your Christian life is going to be to keep in focus the promises of God and who you are in Christ rather than like, my circumstances are terrible. Oh, you don't know my story. And so Zechariah is a completely, completely flawed dude. He's a flawed dude. He just says like, I doubt it. And let me tell you why, Gabriel. Like, you might have it going on in the Shekinah glory thing, but you don't know. Like my wife, have you seen her lately? Right? She is, this is a beautifully diplomatic phrase for husbands. She is advancing in years, right? She is advanced in years. That's what she is. And there's no other way to say it than she's just flat out old, right? She's too old. And even if, even if you would have had like the, if you would have had wife you know, 2.0 instead of 12.6, which he is now. The earlier iterations, he might say to Gabriel, she was barren. For whatever reason, we've prayed for years and God did not give a child. So you don't know what you're talking about and this is not going to happen. And Gabriel, I don't know if God knew this was coming or if he always has this kind of authority. I'd like to think for angels' sake that they can always just mute people when they want. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't you want that if you were an angel? I mean, like, you have, to, you have to guard people all the time and fly around and give messages. At least you'd have the power to, like, shush, right? Just this is a power angel shush that happens. And I'm not sure if God told Gabriel, like, Zechariah is totally not going to buy it. He's going to say, my circumstances. He's going to say, oh, the promise of God, mm, but. Oh, the promise of God, mm, I don't know. The promise of God, ah, I'm not sure. And in the midst of that, right, he tells Gabriel, basically, you have the authority. You are going to completely shut up his mouth. And so we know that for the next 10 months or so, this child is not yet conceived. For 10 months, probably, Zechariah takes on a persona and becomes a living example of the condition of the people of Israel. That's what happens. He becomes a man who is waiting in silence. I want you to know, when you read through Luke 1, if you take time, and I, I, I'd invite you to over the next few weeks, le- read these chapters. Meditate in them. You will see how often the word waiting shows up, right? You know that it's been 400 plus years of silence? There was a time when God, now spoke rather through some peculiar folks, right? And prophetic, prophetic things were spoken that were not very pleasant, but at least God was speaking, right? Have you ever had that case before? Have you ever fought with someone for a long, long time? And you hate the fighting, but the only thing worse than the fighting was just no contact at all? To be abandoned is much, much worse than to be opposed. And Israel is feeling in this moment, they are waiting, they are, they are in the silence, they are longing, things have been delayed. And here comes little Zechariah, who has to wait in silence for this entire pregnancy. He takes on, he personifies. I think sometimes the Bible is more, and God is more literary. He is more literary than we think. 
He takes on a persona that's much like the nation of Israel. I love the, the, the terms. It says that even those who were outside had to wait on him. They were waiting on Zechariah. Why the delay? And this is the collective groan of the people at this time. You get that, right? The collective groan of the people at this time is, God, why the delay? Why this waiting? When the Messiah? When will you redeem? When will you deliver? How long, O oh Lord? That's the collective groan of the people. Some of you know that groan very well. It might not be that you're groaning for the revealing of, the, of God made flesh, right? It might not be the collective groan of the nation of God and, and redemption, but you know, you know what groaning and longing and waiting is like, and it is difficult. So let's reach forward. We'll reach forward to verse 57, and we're going to see the story. We're going to see the story of the birth of John. In verse 57, we find this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to the circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We'll stop right there. You know, one of the things that God did to prepare for Jesus coming to the world is he took a story and he made it viral. <laughs> the story of John's birth went viral. It was all up in Instagram. People were sharing that thing. Facebook, YouTube had to investigate it because it got too many views, right? This story, it says one of the things that God did to prepare the people was to come alongside their longing and their waiting. You know what he did? He, he put wonder alongside their waiting. That's what he did. God begins to put wonder in. It's one of the first steps toward hope, right? Is you just wonder, like you wonder, could God be doing something here? You wonder, like, could God be working for my good here in this thing? I've been waiting for so long. They've been waiting for so long, and now they begin to wonder. To get to the point of wonder is almost always in Scripture a gift of God. Where wonder shows up, it's because God has done miraculous things. He's given His Holy Spirit. And many of us, the thing that we suffer from the most, the malady of your soul, is you have lost wonder completely. You've lost it completely. We celebrate, and I say to you, God became flesh. Eh, I know, I know the story. Yeah, thanks. Confess your sins. They can be washed away and forgiven. Yeah, or you guys want to eat lunch? What do you guys, what do you think of that? Jesus Christ took on the penalty of sin and bore it in his flesh. He went to the grave and then was raised from the dead, Right? You guys know we won 29 straight? It's amazing, right? All those things are good. I hope you eat at the best place after church. 30 straight. 30, 31 is what we need, right? We need 31. But we have an unbelievable, an astounding lack of wonder. 
It's an astounding lack of wonder in the church. We really do. And one of the first things God does when he starts to prepare the way is he, right up alongside waiting, he brings in a little bit of wonder. Because this story is weird, right? So why did her neighbors and her relatives know that God had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her? It wasn't just because a baby came. Everyone should rejoice when a baby comes. And I'll say it as boldly as we can. We ought to be, of all people, the kind of people who rejoice and love children. God has given children as a heritage. We are in a society and in a world that children are seen as a complete obstacle, a hindrance, sort of like, oh, wow, you're pregnant. Sorry. I, what, are you, what are you guys going to do, right? We have, an entire, we have entire systems bronzed in law to deal with the inconvenience of children. That's the world that we live in. And we of all people ought to rejoice and ought to be glad and ought to pray with people and labor with people and say, how can we help you? Yes, God, bring us kids. And so maybe a very normal thing is happening, but you do know that this is like rejoicing plus. So this is like rejoicing with a little bit more. Why? Because they're saying to themselves like, hey, did you hear that our community has a new baby? It's a new person. Great, a baby. Yeah, it was the old woman that old lady. I'm sure right now, because Guinness tracks all these things, there is the oldest woman ever to give birth. I don't know who she is, right? But that's the kind of curiosity that's happening here. And they are seeing every time a child comes, you know this, it's mercy. Every single time a pregnancy is conceived all the way through, all the way through to I have a crying child who eats way too much and it many times stresses me, right? That is mercy of God all the way, all the way through. But in this case, they said, you know what? This is God's mercy. This is God's mercy especially because these, these two have prayed for years and they never had a child and now they do. We have this peculiar moment and this becomes a moment of a test of the obedience of Zechariah. 